So first of all, welcome everyone. And did anyone not get to introduce himself? You didn't. What's your name? Sana. Sana, welcome. Pleasure. And um, one of the things I do want to discuss is that even though I want to go back to a class that I taught two weeks ago and do a little review and then go through this article with some Jewish dating tips, okay? Because what we really spend time on is more relationship building and sometimes dating is not always about the relationship. We'll get to that soon. Does anybody remember two weeks ago? I know it's a long time ago. Does anybody remember what they ate for breakfast yesterday? Um, but, but two weeks ago, we spent a good amount of time um, speaking a little about Adam 1 and Adam 2. Yes. You remember this? Yeah. For those of you who weren't here, we do a little review. It's okay. The Torah, in the book of Genesis, which is the very beginning, has actually two different accounts of the creation of people, Adam and Eve. And there are four distinctions, but I, we only focused on two. Meaning the way that the Torah describes the way God created Adam and Eve is different in chapter 1 than it is in chapter 2. Anybody know any of those differences that we talked about? Yeah, I think the one that one is where um, Adam was alone. Yeah. And then God took a part of the rip and then created another. And then the other one, it's... Um, the other one, that's chapter two. The way God, the way the Torah describes the creation of Adam and Eve in chapter two is I think the classic explanation most of us who studied the Bible when we were kids are familiar with, which is that God created Adam. He was all alone until Eve came into the picture, except who was Adam with? He wasn't really all alone. Who else was in the world with Adam before Eve animals. came? Animals. And he was actually in that state told to name the animals which is another way of saying getting to know the animals, because a name is supposed to, in Kabbalah, in Jewish a mystical tradition, is supposed to express the essence of, like when parents give you your name, believe it or not, it's supposed to somehow capture the essence of who you are, your Hebrew name, which is why the rabbis teach that your parents get a little what's called siyata dishmaya, a little help from heaven um, when they name you, because how are they supposed to really know your essence when you just came into the world, like the day before? Um, so Adam, Adam, Adam one, um, excuse me, Adam two, um, is, is really all alone for quite a while. Adam one, the way the Torah describes the creation of Adam in chapter one of Genesis, he is created, how? With, uh, with Eve. Because the verse in the Torah says, Zachar unekeva bara otam, male and female, he created them. The first person, according to the, the Torah, who came into existence was not a man or a woman. It was a combination, a mephrodite, whatever you want to call it, different explanations. The front was Adam, the back was Eve, whatever it is. But they came into existence simultaneously. Now, what is the Torah trying to do, just to confuse us? The Torah describes the creation of Adam and Eve one way in chapter 1 and another way in chapter 2. I didn't mention this two weeks ago, but some of the Bible critics who view the Torah being written by people, use that as evidence that it must be have written by people. One dude wrote chapter 1, and another guy wrote chapter 2. Or one group of scholars wrote chapter 1. Rabbi Salvechik came along in a very famous work called The Lonely Man of Faith, and said, no, there's one author of the Torah, and that is, we believe, God. But people are complex. 
And what God is doing by describing Adam and Eve's creation in chapter 1 is to teach us that there's an Adam 1 to all of us, and there's also an Adam 2. There's a part of us that's created together with our soulmate. And what does that mean? What is the idea that Adam 1 and Adam 2 were created together? This is very interesting. One other distinction. What was Adam 1's job? And what was Adam 2's job? What did God command Adam in chapter 1 to do versus God's command to Adam in chapter 2? Do you remember? Well, they were both told to be fruitful and multiply. To have kids and to bring you know, life into the world. But they had a different job vis-a-vis the environment. To keep an, uh, to keep an eye on... To, the Avdal which means to guard. Yeah, to guard. That was chapter 2. And then chapter See if you can follow this, guys. And in chapter 1, what was Adam told by God to do? Vikiv Shuha, which means to conquer, to dominate, to basically mine the world of its resources and to conquer the world, to subdue it, to subject the world to human dominion, to make a better world. The second Adam the one who's created alone, was told to simply watch La'avda, to serve the world, to serve the ground, to serve earth, and to, and, to, and to watch it. There's no coincidence that the Adam one who's created simultaneous with Eve is told to, to, to have dominion over the world. Why? Because two hands are better than one. It's more productive. That's why people enter into partnerships with each other. Because you can get more done. You can be more successful. Why should I have to split the profits with my partner? I'll take all the profits myself. Why do people enter into partnerships and contracts? Because you can get a lot more done. You can be more successful. And that's why Adam and Eve were created together in chapter 1. Because their relationship was what? It's just all about getting stuff done. It was a productive relationship, but not a holy one. Because a holy relationship... There's got to be more than simply using the other to get what you need. And I started last two weeks ago talking about this issue, about the way we date. Because we date in a similar fashion. Think about it. We all have needs. We have physical needs, intimacy. We have social needs, companionship. We have, um, you know, we're all mortal, so we all know that one day we won't be here. We want to leave this world with something, some kind of trace of who we were. So we're, we're not here today and literally gone tomorrow. Mm-hmm. We have all of these, you know, we get lonely, we want to feel supported, right? So what do we do? We go out and we date. And then we try to find someone who can fill those needs. That's kind of the Adam one paradigm of dating. What's the problem with that? Sounds simple. I have a need A, B, and C. I'm going to find someone who can fulfill A, B, and C. Simple, right, Cheryl? It's easy. <laughs> why, why is it? Why is it not so simple, guys? What's that? We're very picky, and as we get older, we get pickier. <laughs> why is that? Because we become more aware of our needs. The list continues to grow, and even when we're young and stupid which is when a lot of people say, oh, I should have just gotten married then. I didn't think as much about things. <laughs> so um, the list is going to keep changing. 
this is my theory, this is my personal idea. I think we're different people every five years. Every five years, think about it. We're radically different people every five years. We know this physiologically to be true, that we, we you know, our skin, our cells, everything is constantly changing. We change. So if the whole theory is that I'm going to find someone who can fill my needs, but I'm going to be different in five years. I may have a completely different job. Someone in my family might, God forbid, pass away. I may get sick. Uh, my whole outlook on life could radically change. So if I'm only looking for somebody when I'm, look, let's say I'm dating, I'm 25, I'm 30, I'm 35, I'm only looking for then and there. That's only going to work for the next five years. Maybe 10. What's going to happen then? There's got to be something deeper than just simply filling in. And here's the other practical problem. Maybe I can find someone I'm attracted to, but they don't make me laugh. And maybe they make me laugh, but intellectually we're not compatible. She's too liberal. He's too conservative. He's this. She's that. Bam! It's impossible. And as we become more self-aware, the list continues to grow. So I suggested, and by the way, before I get off this and get to Adam too, I do suggest, based on some of what I've heard from my teachers and rabbis, is that we narrow down the list. And that doesn't mean you're compromising. That means you're being real. That means you actually want to get married. Because if anyone's list is so long that it becomes so unreasonable, then you have to really ask yourself, even though you say, and I, I did this too, when I was single for a bunch of years, I told everyone and I told myself that I'm dating for marriage. But now when I look back at it, I realize that that few year period that I said, or maybe convinced myself, I wasn't. I wasn't. Because if you're really dating for marriage, it doesn't have to take nearly as long. And I'm not advocating you do what the uh, Hasidic world does and, you know, three, four dates and, you know, <laughs> and that's it. I'm not, I, that's not the way I dated. I, I don't think it's realistic for, for most of us from the backgrounds that we come from. But if we really want to settle down and we really believe in the institution of marriage, we're going to narrow it down three areas, I said. Area one, attraction, which is different than, than let's say, sexual compatibility. In Judaism, attraction is a criteria for, for marriage, physical attraction. But we don't believe you have to take the car out for a spin and keep driving it around till you're so sure it's the perfect car for you. We don't believe that. We believe that as long as you're physically attracted to the other person, you'll make it work. Um, and you needed to come to my class three weeks ago to really understand why sex is such an important thing for, for marriage and how it was really designed to solidify a commitment that's already been made, not as a gauge or not as a determinant as to whether I should make the commitment. That's the way we use it, let's face it. We use sex as another means. It's another check, and it's another box. Now, we don't go to the other extreme and say, oh, let's just marry anyone. Okay? The Talmud actually says this explicitly. You have to see the person that you're going to... I know this sounds ridiculous. Who's not going to see the person they're about to marry? But in very arranged Hasidic marriages, they, you know, that could happen. And the Talmud says, no, that's not permissible. You have to actually see the person you're going to be married that you would like to marry, and you have to be physically attracted to them. Within reason, obviously, because that changes too. But, um, so the three areas was physical attraction, not necessarily sex, but physical attraction. The sex becomes a very important thing in marriage itself. The second thing I mentioned was... Good character. Um, 
good character, specifically kindness. Um, the reason I think the rabbi who mentioned this felt that it should be one of the big three is because we could all become more kind people and we could all change and improve and that's one of the reasons we come to classes and we come to services and we do believe in the power of change but it's hard <laughs> and uh, Rabbi Yisrael Misalant, one of the great ethicists uh, rabbinic ethicists started the Musa movement said that it's easier to master 100 pages of Talmud than it is to change one measure in your personality has anyone mastered 100 pages of Talmud? <laughs> it's really hard. <laughs> okay, and that's easier, he said, than changing one little measure. Now, he didn't say you can't do it. We believe you can. And like anything else, you can learn to be a bit, all of us. That's what the Torah is for, for us to become better. But you don't want to go into a marriage, you know, just sort of hoping the person's going to change. That's a recipe for disaster. Uh, it's also not a very good feeling and vibe to give to your partner. I love you if, you know, if you lose a couple of pounds and if you do this and if you do that, then everything is going to be great. Then I'll be happy with you. And that's, you can't, you can't do that. So, so that's why the second thing is kindness slash character. And then the third is shared values. Shared values is very important um, because, you know, a lot of people think they can, you know, love conquers all. And all you need is love. Great song by a great band, but it's not really true. I think love is very, very important, but my mother of blessed memory always used to say, she used to be very embarrassing to me when I was a kid, I loved your father before we got married, but that wasn't really love. You know, because what is love? Love is really based on, anybody know Hebraically what love is based on, actually? The Hebrew word, ahava. So Give, very good. The Hebrew word ahava is the two, is based on the two-letter shoresh or root. Hey, bet. Hav means to give. Love can't, you can't really fall in love with someone that you haven't seriously given to. And that's what marriage is. So I don't know how much we've given to our partners before we, we say we, we love you. But it's, it's an unconditional kind of love. And anyway, so shared values is very, very important. That's where, like, the Jewish thing comes in, or... I don't know, when I grew up, um, liberals dated conservatives. Democrats, for sure, went out with Republicans and, and back and forth. I don't know. I, I, it doesn't seem to happen anymore. Like, at all. People are actually leaving New York to date because I, I have students who became a little more conservative during COVID, or maybe since October 7th, and moved to Florida. That's where all the conservatives moved to. That's where they go. <laughs> and, uh, because they didn't like the dating pool in New York. It was too liberal for them. Um, then I have people from Florida move to New York. Like, It's a little ridiculous that we can't fall in love with someone that has a different um, ideological perspective. But today, politics has become people's religion, which I don't think is healthy. But that's the reality. And if, and if your political stance on things is so embedded into your value system, then I guess it makes sense that, you know, um, a Republican and a Democrat can't really, you know, get it together. Um, it just was never like that for, for us growing up. I'm going to sound like an old man, but, like, I worked for two of my, I worked for two members of Congress when I grew up, and I, I, I'm probably a little more right of center, 
you know, but they were both liberal Democrats, and I had the greatest respect and regard for them. I worked with Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who was a senator here in New York City, and my congressman, Gary Ackerman. And they were both on the left for a lot of things. Both very pro-Israel, by the way. The liberal left Democrats were the pro-Israels. Things have shifted a lot. So anyway, those are the three areas. But I want to go now, just to get a little deeper, because I said before that with the way we date can't simply be focused on getting our needs met, because that's Adam one, and that's practical, it's utilitarian, and it's in a, in a kind of shallow sense, kind of using. I have needs, you have needs, so let's parasitically sort of work off each other's needs. There's got to be something deeper. And that's where Adam 2 comes in. Because Adam 2, as described in chapter 2 of the book of Genesis, is all alone. And God says, Lo tov hiyot adam levado. It's not good for man to be alone. I will make for him an ezer kenegdo. An ezer, helper, kenegdo, means against them. Now, most of the English translations say a helpmate. But it's a very poor English translation. Because it doesn't really mean a helpmate. It means someone who's your helper, who's against you. Now, how is that? How do you have someone who's a helper that's against you? What do you think? Like, let's get somebody else in here. What, 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 um... They challenge you. They challenge you? From what kind of perspective, though? They challenge you, they want you to be different because they're not happy with the way you are? They challenge you to be a better person. Yeah. You don't want to marry a yes person but you don't want to marry someone who's going to constantly knock you down. I mean, I had a friend, nobody will figure this out, who married somebody like that, unfortunately, and I saw him years later. He looked physically like he was beaten up. It was just not with somebody that was supportive. So you want somebody supportive, but you want someone who actually believes that you could be better. Not because they need you to be better, because that's why we get together with each other, so we can be better. What's the point of staying the same? You can do that alone. You don't need somebody else to remain as you are. We need somebody else to improve. But someone who's in your, you know, it's like, uh, I don't know, I used to watch Rocky movies when I was a kid. It's like somebody in your corner who's yelling in your face, you can do it! Bum! Right? So you need a little of the bum to be able to be pushed, but it's someone you know has your back. You know? I just saw... Sylvester Stallone give a eulogy for um, Apollo Creed. I forgot his real name. Carl, Carl Benz. Yeah. Well, he, he didn't have to kill my buddies. Yeah, but it was very beautiful, what he said. But they were like that, at least in the movie, I don't know, in real life, you know. Um, so the second, the second um, uh, version, if you will, of Adam and Eve is Adam is all alone, and then he finds somebody who what? How does he know Eve is the right person? It's not just because she fits the box, she checks off the box. It's because, she wasn't the only one though. God put more. Who else was Adam with? We said before, I know this sounds weird. He was with the animals and it implies that he was considering a life with one of those animals. (laughs) And uh, I don't pretend to understand this part of the rabbinic biblical tradition, but, but he found somebody that understood him. And I think that's another very important criteria, because we all have a little existential loneliness. 
And by the way, when I say lonely, I don't mean being alone. Right? We have a nice group in this room. Or you can be in Madison Square Garden and be with 20,000 screaming fans at a Billy Joel concert. I'm definitely dating myself tonight. Um, <laughs> but if there isn't one person in that stadium who A, understands you, and B, accepts you, then you can be a very lonely person. And that's why we get married also. And that is to overcome our existential loneliness that we all go through. And by the way, that's a very healthy thing. It's healthy for a certain period of time to be by oneself, to be able to understand who we are, what we need. But at some point then to say, okay, it's not good for man to be alone. I'm going to try to find one of those helpers against me. Um, and then it says that a man should leave the house of his mother and his father. A man should leave his mother and his father. Figuratively, you don't say goodbye. You come and visit, I don't know, Sundays, whatever. Uh, and it says that, that a man and woman will get together. They become one flesh. They literally become one. So what's happening, basically, is we're going back to the Garden of Eden. Because Adam 1 was created simultaneously with Eve. It was somehow split up. And now we're trying to find, we do believe in this concept of a Bashar, of a soulmate. That there was somebody, the Talmud says that 40 days before any of us come into this world, a bat call, a declaration goes out, that so-and-so for so-and-so. And it's not just a romantic idea. It's, it's a Jewish Kabbalistic concept. But you can blow it. You can blow your soulmate. And there might be more than one. How do you explain all those other amazing second marriages that happen? Or people who get together and there's a divorce after a couple of months or a year or five. And then they meet the love of their life and they feel like they're soulmates. So it's a little more complicated than there's just this one person and we're going to just... All I have to do is just, at some point, I'll meet him. And this is a good segue to the next part of our discussion. Judaism is always a partnership between ourselves and God. We don't just say, well, God's going to determine how much money I make this year anyway, so what's the point? I don't need to get up. I can get fired from my job, and I'll make whatever I need to make anyway. You know? Um, no, you got to do what's called in Hebrew, Yehushtadlit. Human initiative. You've got to work hard. Put your best foot forward. Put on that new shirt. Look your best. Sound your best, right? Do your. But at the end of the day, it's also in Hashem's hands. We need God's blessing. And not one or the other is exclusive. It's a, and dating is the perfect example of this. Because we have to do our best, but at some point, you have to stop beating yourself up and saying, look, I'm doing my best. The rest is in Hashem's hands. This, by the way, is one of the most comforting parts of being a religious personality. I asked this to Bidi Deutsch. She's Israel's fastest runner. Do you know Bidi? So she, at college, she was, um, her and her husband, like, it's like a Chabad, but it's called Jack. I know her and her husband. Well, yeah. She's great. I interviewed yeah. her for the podca my podcast, and um, it's a great episode. It's called The Wildcast. You just look for Bidi Deutsch. I asked her, I said, she's very religious. She only runs in skirts. She's very, like, modest. She's adorable, fast. And I said, how has being religious changed the way you run? So she said, I train hard. I do my best, you know, sorry for the pun. I put my best foot forward. And then the rest is in Hashem's hands. I don't have a good run one day. There's nothing I can do. It's a, it's a relief. Because the rest of us, if we think we're in control of everything, 
in terms of finding Mr. or Mrs. Wright, in terms of the perfect job or winning the race, all you and I can do is train our best, look our best, sound our best, you know, don't like act, excuse me, like an idiot in front of the, the person who's interviewing you for the, for, the, for the job that you want or the promotion you want to gain. But once you've done that, that's it, man. That's all you can do. There is a God running the show. It's not just you and the other person. Now, I don't know if everyone here believes that, but if you believe that not only God created the world, but that he's still involved in operating the world, that's what it means to be a believing Jew, that you believe you do your best, and, and that's all we can do. And that's why one of the things we should do when we date, and we're really dating, if we're dating for marriage, is not only do our best on the date, but what else? Pray. How many of us pray that Hashem should help us find the right person? And here's more, a bigger prayer. Keep the right person. <laughs> because finding the right person is not even half the job. And when you don't have the right person yet, you think, and I did too, that that's the whole thing. And if I just find the right person, I get to just glide the rest of my life. Life becomes one big you know, bowl of ice cream afterwards. And I will tell you, and I've, I'm very blessed, it is not a bowl of ice cream. It's not, you know... Um, I'm trying to think of something yucky. It's not that either. You know, but it requires, it requires work and it requires continued praying too. Um, but what are some of the things? So we already reviewed a few things. The three biggies in terms of what I think classically, physical attraction, um, kindness slash good character, and then the third thing is shared values. And the last thing that I was developing from Adam too is someone you feel is beginning to understand you, accepting you, and someone you want to give to. I don't know if that's the question you've ever asked yourself when you're, when you're dating someone. Is this somebody I want to give to? Is this someone I want to get to know better, learn more about, and give to them? Because that's your life. Life basically presents years, please God, of opportunity to give to your partner. That's where sex comes in too physical pleasure, and other types of things. And if you have those things, then, um, I mean, I think that's it. You know, I, I think you want to do is cut off a lot of the other stuff. And I'm not saying it's not important. I'm not saying, I, I, you know, traveling for me is so important. Therefore, I'm not saying it, but if you really are serious about getting a job, a husband or wife, a house, or this and that, you know Everybody here knows you can't get everything, right? And you can't always get what you want, but <laughs> you get what you need. It's a very wise line. It's a really good line. Uh, so let's read a little from the Shidduch, How Jews Date. I just literally Googled it, and this came up, and I thought it had some um, good insights. Any questions or comments about what I've said so far? Anything I've said so far, please. Let me just pass that. Uh, yeah, you didn't expand on how you uh, blow it. How can you blow it? Yeah. Oh, by being before. a jerk. No, before. Before, like even before. You before meeting uh, someone. No, what I meant by that was that you couldn't meet your soulmate, and for some reason you can mess up the relationship, and then it doesn't happen. You either break up or you get broken up with, and even though the name was rang out for you, it's still something for you. It's something that you could lose still if you don't play your cards right. Um, 
I think that's very, very important. Just because there's this person that you're supposed to be with doesn't mean you can act like an idiot to them or do really ridiculous things. But the rabbis believe that as long as you act appropriately, you act like a mensch, and you follow the values of the Torah, and I'm going to give you a couple of t- t- uh, dating tips from this, that, that uh, you'll be able to you know, be with your soulmate. Yeah? Uh, a clarifying question. The, the way you laid out those three, um, the three categories, I think, were really interesting, and I don't think anyone would interpret what you said as saying that, like, you know, you don't need to max it. You know, there may be trade-offs between those three, right? The most physically beautiful person might not be the kindest, might not be Mother Teresa, who might not be Jewish. Good point. Uh, right? Very good point. So one question on the values, on the shared value side is the following. How could one, or how might you suggest one think about um, differences in Jewish practice, and perhaps let's say someone is at, let's say two people have very different practices, but they think they can accept each other's practices related to perhaps differences in like kosher observance, Shabbat Yeah, that's a really good question. And then question. how do you think about, let's say, if one person has been kind of doing the same thing for a long time, and another person is on a trajectory or is thinking about being on a trajectory, but maybe they want to go back. Maybe, like, how, how does one think Well, it all values? depends where you, you feel you want to end up. My wife and I were in very different, in different places when we first met. Um, I, I was raised in the Orthodox community. I was raised religiously observant. My wife was not. But when we met, we met at a class, and she was on a sort of a spiritual journey, and I was very excited about that. There are other people in the community who would be a little afraid of that, who would not be interested in dating someone who's not simply compatible now with who they are. But I don't know, I, I, that, that to me was very exciting. And I think that that can really work well if w- where you want to go. You see, because when you bring kids into the picture, those distinctions between religious levels and observances become magnified. And then you start also, you know, kids have like hypocrisy radars. They can like sense <laughs> hypocrisy because they're looking, they're like sniffing for it. They're like waiting <laughs> to pounce on their parents when they preach one thing and do something else. You know, and, you know, um, growing up, I had a friend. His mother was very religious. His father was not. It was, it was an interesting home. I would come there on Shabbat, and his mother was a very spiritual holy woman. She'd be sitting by the Shabbat candles, <coughs> reciting psalms, learning, like, Tehillim. And the father was, like, in the garage, you know, fixing stuff, you know. <laughs> and, um, and it was very confusing for my friend. It was. Now, I'm not saying that can't work. Their marriage lasted for many years, and they had a relatively good marriage. They had, a, I, I think, a pretty good marriage, actually. But the kids were a little confused. So it, it depends how intent do you want your kids to be observant. Because if you really want them to be observant, you have to give them a consistent kind of, you know, and, and that could be confusing. But I don't believe that people need to be exactly on the same page when they start dating. And I think it's okay, somebody grows up orthodox, somebody grows up conservative, somebody is reformed, somebody's unaffiliated. Where's the question is, where do you want to go? We don't have to define ourselves based on our family background. I mean, how many people here enter different realms, different professions than your parents did? You might have been raised in a home where both parents were doctors and you decided to be an attorney. You both lawyers and you wanted to be a social worker. I don't know, people break out of those things all the time. And I don't think religious... I mean, I don't mean to understate it, you know, I don't mean to poo-poo it, but um, I think that this open lines of communication, the only thing I can't do as a rabbi, and I've been asked to do this many times, the couple comes to see me, 
And this, let's say the, 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 the woman is more observant, the guy's less. So what would a good therapist do? Compromise. But I, as a rabbi, can't tell someone who's keeping Shabbat, stop keeping Shabbat so that this relationship could work. You know, I, I don't have that license, and I don't think it's good for people. I also think people become resentful. I could have been this, I could have done that, I could have been, you know, sending my kids to yeshiva day school, keeping a full Sabbath, and because of you, you never want to do that. Uh, now, I guess it could work the other way, too. If somebody feels resentful, they don't want a religious life. So it can't, it doesn't always work. So it's really a case-by-case -case analysis. It's a really good question. Um, there is nothing, I will say this, though, there is nothing that helps more to solidify two people's relationship with each other than becoming more observant. And I know that's like, of course, the, the crazy Orthodox rabbi is trained to say that. But I, it's true. Shabbos is the best thing for relationships. Keeping kosher, observances, a little discipline, following just what the Torah, the way the Torah wants to live our lives, it's so geared towards building relationships and families. That's what it's made for. And it works really well. And I can demonstrate it in studies that the more observant families are, the longer those marriages last. And the longer they, they, there's... And, and not perfect, there's, there's divorce in the Orthodox community, and there's dysfunction in the Orthodox community like in any community. It's not perfect. But there's, there's, it's better. It really is better. One of the problems we're having in America um, with the breakdown in religion is that it's affecting family life. And I don't just mean in, in the Jewish world. We're small people. I'm saying in Christianity, less people going to church means worse things for families. And I don't believe in Jesus. <laughs> okay? But it's not good for family life. And if the families go down, a lot of other important values in this great country go down too. So it's, it's an issue. I know I sound like a Christian evangelical right now, but like, <laughs> it's true. You have to just look at which relationships are working and which are not. And the more tied into something spiritual, into something beyond yourself. And I said that two weeks ago also, I want to reiterate, really important. Best thing that a couple can do for each other is not simply doing for the other. It's doing something together for someone else. That's why children are important, and that's why getting in, involved in some kind of cause. And that's a nice way to date also. Because what do we think about when we go on dates? Oh, how can I get to know this person better? Which is good. That's part of what a date is. But come on, like it doesn't have to be so focused on each of you, right? Do something. There's a beautiful senior citizen place around the corner from here. It's called Darot. It's on 85th between Amsterdam and Columbus. You can just go there, and they'll give you packages, and you can deliver it to senior citizens. It's such a nice way of spending time with somebody else. You'll really get to see the way a person is helping somebody else. And that could bind, bond people much better than just sitting across from each other in a restaurant. And I'm not saying that shouldn't be part of the dating, but um, volunteering and doing something for others always brings couples and families together. Really important idea. Great question. Any other comments, questions? And we'll do a little couple of dating tips. A few minutes left. Okay, let's do some dating tips. Um, we can skip the... Uh, um, we skip the intro. Um, one thing I will say that he's kind of saying in the intro is that Jewish dating is not just hanging out. You're dating really to meet somebody to 
find someone. That doesn't mean you can't hang out with someone and just have a good time, but that's not really what we talk, talk about when we talk about dating. So the first thing he says is you will find what you seek, right? The focus of a date, top of top, page two, is determine whether this person that you're seeing has the qualities. So successful dating really is an art. It requires the mind to take control of the domain, which instinctively belongs to the heart. And this is hard, and this is why sometimes we date too long, because we get just involved emotionally, and we're not trying to think a little rationally. There are some restrictions um, on the date. He says, he suggests this, uh, the author. Um, he doesn't like going on a date at a, for a movie. I was to love that because I needed to chill out, and I love movies. But let's face it, you're not going to really get to know the person sitting next to them watching a big screen. Um, but it is part of having fun, and you want to have fun on your dates. So after two or three dates of getting to know each other, hey, you want to go see a movie, that's great. Just doesn't recommend it in the very, very beginning. Um, now, what about friends turning into lovers? Positive, negative? Depends. I, I'm just going to say I am super into this. Okay, that's how my... Not just because that's how my relationship with my wife developed. We were, we were friends first. I mean, I liked her, but she only wanted to be my friend. And then, um, <laughs> but we were friends. We were friends, and then that morphed into something. How long were we friends for? We actually met in this room. Really? I was standing over there. She was sitting over here at a class. Ooh. And um, I uh, asked my teacher whether it would be inappropriate to ask a student out because that's a little beneath industry standard, you know. Um, he said, wait for the semester to be over. So I waited another three classes. I thought, and then like an idiot, in the last class I advertised the next series of eight classes, which she then signed up for. So I couldn't ask her out then. <laughs> then she started dating my best friend. Aww. Went out, yeah. <laughs> went out, they went out for a couple of months. And he's still my probably my closest friend, he lives in Israel, and, um, and I had to listen to both of them complaining to, uh, about the other to me, and I was like pretending like I could care less, and then they broke up, and, and then we started going out, and, um, but we, so during that five, six month period, we became friends, we lived in the same building, we used to walk to class together, we used to hang out, and I do think that there are a lot, particularly here on the Upper West Side, that there are a lot of friendships that could be converted into romantic relationships. But here's what you have to do. At some point, you have to pull it out of the friendship zone and ask the person out. Dim the lights, make it romantic, and stop hanging out like they're your friend. And then here's what's going to happen. Oh, I don't want to do that because if it doesn't go, it's going to be awkward. I'm going to lose a friend. So I'm going to tell you one of my closest friends. He could listen to this, and I'll send him this. My friend Ari Solomon, he's married over 30 years. He was buddies with this girl, and I knew he liked her. Oh, we're just friends. I said, Ari, you like her. Ask her out. Mark, if I ask her out and she says no, we'll never be friends again. I said, I'll be your friend. You don't need any more friends. You have other friends. You're a pretty popular guy. You'll lose her as a friend, but maybe you'll have her as a wife. I remember I said this to him. I was like 24, 20, and I convinced him to date her. And he, it was taking a risk because they were friends for years. And I said, yeah, you might lose her as a friend. Uh, by the way, my mother, blessed memory, never believed there is any such thing between the sexes. She didn't believe in platonic relationships because she had her own experience like that too. And um, 
Okay, whatever. Anyway, they're married for many, many years, and it doesn't work with everyone, but you do need to approach it a little differently. You can't expect to start developing romantic feelings for a friend, you know, just because you're spending a lot of time with them. You do have to sort of change it and formalize it. This is the other thing I want to mention about dating. I think there's something we could learn from our, from the Hasidic world in terms of dating. Not going out three or four times and that's it. That's not going to happen. <laughs> what, what were you going to say, Leah? <laughs> yeah, but I, I was going to say that I, it, it needs to be more formal than it is. I think we get married before we're married. Go on a date, take the person out, Spend a little time. Now, Eliza Ben Shalom, I interviewed her for my podcast. She's like the dating coach for our excellence. I tried finding her article and I couldn't, my phone died before, whatever. Uh, you could listen to the podcast. She makes a big deal. She doesn't believe in the first date being longer than an hour. Now, I don't have to, and she's kind of like the guru on this stuff. And then I interviewed another woman, uh, the wing woman, Erin, uh, right? One was observant, one was not. I wanted to get everything. And they both said the same thing. First date shouldn't last too long. And I remember Esther Youngrise saying, don't spend a lot of time on the phone before you go out. Because actually, my wife and I have fixed people up, and they didn't even get to go out. Everything went bad on the phone for too long. Just call them up, set the date, meet. Spend an hour, and then if you like each other, you know, you want to go out again, then, then go, you could spend a little more time the next time. But the idea that what we do is, and we're doing this a little because we're older when we're dating today, and it just feels, I guess, lonely or it feels awkward just saying goodnight. And we want to be with each other and we have physical needs. So we go back and then we become like boyfriend and girlfriend artificially. And we're not really there. We're not ready for that. And then it, it confuses everything. Sex confuses everything. And we're not able to really determine whether or not this is the right person. And it, it, it can drag on endlessly when it shouldn't. Most people break up after six, eight months, a year, two years over the same thing they knew about three, four months, myself included. I dated probably five or six women for about five, six months. We broke up over the same things I detected within the first few weeks. Nothing changed. And, you know, there's this idea if I just spend more and more time with them, something will change. After a certain time, it doesn't work that way. So I like formal dating. I actually think it's much more effective it feels like it's going to take longer, but it's different. Just think about looking for a job. You're much more focused. You get the job. You're just, you're a little more Mr. Spock about the whole thing. I'm not saying not to open up, not to make yourself vulnerable. You need to do that. Get some chemistry going. Have a good time. But then don't just keep letting it, you know, spending endless time with each other. Say goodnight and go home. And if you have a little sexual tension and you have a little, like, you know, I really want to I spend more. That's good. You want that little tease. That's healthy for the relationship. You don't want to overdo it. And I see that all the time. People are constantly overdoing it. Um, one or two other things I want to mention. Um, yeah. Uh, turn the page to page three. Starting the search. All the good ones are already taken. It's a line we've all heard too often. Thousands of websites, organizations devoted to helping singles. Right? A good place to start is the hub of your local Jewish community. We're up to 286, just saying. Uh, in all probability, your synagogue offers a variety of programs, classes, and, and, and evenings of entertainment. The reason I think we've done so well with this is my theory. When people come here not to necessarily date, 
but they came here hopefully for some Jewish wisdom, or they came here to pray, or they came on a ski retreat, right, to have fun with some, right? It takes the pressure off of like the bar single scene, where everyone's standing, looking their best and trying to check out, like, it's basically, you're like walking by a sign, like, oh, you are here to try to meet someone. Who can meet someone in that kind of environment? He needs to chill out, come for something else. There's an organization called NCSY, it's in the Orthodox World National Conference Synagogue Youth. So many people end up and Hask. So many, end, you know what Hask is? Three of my kids did Hask. It's a camp for men and women with severe disabilities. And you're literally taking care of the same person all summer, someone whose diaper you might have to change, someone who's in a very serious, you know, wheelchair-bound, you know, situation. So many people meet and marry at Hask. The counselors. Why? Because they are doing something meaningful and they see other people doing something meaningful. That's very attractive. That bonds people to each other as opposed to going to some bar. And I'm not saying don't go to a bar because maybe you'll meet someone at the bar. But it's, it's not a really conducive environment for connecting with other people. It's very superficial. And you don't get to see a, another person in there in, in a good light. You know, even if they're all decked out. Okay. Anyways, that's the search over here. Um, now, I want to say something about a matchmaker. How many of you guys, show of hands, how many of you guys have been fixed up on a date? Fixed up. Matt, and has anyone ever called like a matchmaker to help you? Okay. Everyone here, if you're serious about dating, like anything else, who would not, would you not get a, take a call from a headhunter for a job? What's the difference between a headhunter and a matchmaker? There's no difference. They're exactly the same thing. And you can cut out a lot of nonsense and a lot of, because basically, how do we meet when we meet in a social environment? It's physical. All we can see is the way the other person looks. And then hopefully I can spend a little time, check out their energy and see, right? But you can cut through a lot of that stuff because it could take five dates to find out something about a person that a matchmaker will tell you even before you go out. Now, I'm not saying it's easy with a matchmaker. I'm not saying they're all great, and I'm not saying they're cheap. <laughs> there are, um, you know, not great matchmakers and people who might rub you the wrong way and just, like, not be, you know, your vibe. But I would not um, rule out, um, and, and, and you shouldn't feel like, like in the Orthodox community, I don't know if this can make you feel any better, like most people are meeting through matchmaking. I don't mean Hasidic. Like in the modern Orthodox community, people are either fixing each other up or they're, they're being involved. People who are 22, 23, 24. When I say the word matchmaker at MG, people feel like, oh, I'm a 45-year-old. I'm so old. I'm such a schleppy nebuch. Nobody wants to see me. I'll call the matchmaker. Okay, that, but that's not, that's not what it needs to be. That's not what it should be. So I am a big, um, I'm a big uh, you know, compro uh, component of that. One last thing here. Um, dating is not a game. Page four on the bottom. Um, this is very important. You have to be a mensch. I'm going to end with this. You got to be a mensch. I cannot tell you the, the horror stories that I continue to hear about people going out. How people ghost each other. How they 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 just they show up late. They they leave in the middle of the thing. They're they're talking to somebody else. Like I don't know. We lost like basic human decency in dating. I, I, don't, I don't know when this started. I just remember, and I'm married 28 years, so I was dating 30 years, you know, 
long, I guess it's a whole generation already, but like, I just remember like when you went out with someone, you basically committed to taking this person out for dinner, taking them home. It was a night. It was a commitment. And you did it. And, um, and if the person doesn't have a, a, a prison record, a criminal record, and you're not grossed out by looking at them, you go on a second date. Because why, we have such confidence in ourselves. We know exactly that we want. That, you know, like I always say this. And I, it was this, one of my teachers tried fixing me up when I was single. And he said, Mark, I want to fix you up with this girl. Remember, she was from Montreal. But I'm not fixing you up with her unless you agree to go out with her at least twice. I was like, Rabbi, I don't even know if I like her or anything. I trust you. I didn't get a chance to see a picture or nothing. I said, I'm already going out twice. He goes, Mark, she's a little shy. You're not going to really get to know her on the first day. It's going to take two dates to get a little of a sense. And he refused to let me go out with her unless... And he was right. I went out, you know, two day, whatever. It didn't work out, but we need to give each other a little more of a chance and not be so quick um, in, initially. I think we take too long later on and we're too quick to dismiss people earlier up. That's what I'm seeing. I think give people the benefit of the doubt unless the person you have no physical attraction to and there's just like zero, you know, like there's no energy going on, there's like nothing or negative, okay? <laughs> then you don't go out again. But otherwise, I think that's my opinion. You go on a second date and the most important thing is you call the person back. And I'm very old fashioned. If you're a guy, you take the girl home. You bring her to her home. If that means you have to rent a car, go in an Uber, you don't just send her in a train to somewhere else, you bring the person back, open up the door, hold the door, be a mensch, like be a gentleman. And I, I just, I'm not seeing this and it's upsetting to me. And I know that, you know, the role of women in our society has changed, but the last time I checked, women still really like this and men still feel good when they do it. And I think a man needs to be a man and a woman needs to be a woman. I think that's very important. That doesn't mean that both men and women can't have successful, ambitious careers. But I think if we start, you know, emasculating men and defeminizing women, okay, it's just going to continue to wreak havoc as it is in our society. And I'm not trying to make a comment on, 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 on homosexuality or the trans movement. People are going to be whoever they choose to be. But don't think that if we lose those you know, old-fashioned kind of being a man or being, you know, a woman. And, and I'll say something else to the women, and I hope you don't find this patronizing or sexist in any way. But guys like to, um, I find, and I was this way, I probably still am, you know, guys like to feel good about themselves. So it wouldn't hurt if you laughed at a couple of our jokes. <laughs> Even if you didn't think they were so funny. And you asked the person, how was your day? Now, a man should do this for a woman too, but I think a man has more of a need to feel appreciated and respected. And I think a woman has more of a need to feel secure and loved. And I don't think those things are gonna change no matter how much our society changes. And I think it's really important to be aware of that because it just, it helps build the relationship. Any other comments or questions? Yeah, please. I, just on what you said, because I really agree with you about being more fascist, but what are your thoughts on women asking men out? Um, so if you ask my wife, she will say that she asked me out. And technically, even though I liked her before she did me, she did ask me out on the, on the first date. It's totally cool. I don't know why there was ever a taboo for a woman to ask a man out. Why not? Um, I, don't, I don't see the difference. So yeah. I'm curious about it, um, emasculating men. 
early on. Well, yeah, but let's say the guy is not going to do it. I mean, the, the goal is to get to a date. So however that happens, I guess it would be better for the man to feel like a guy because he hunted a little and he got his prey, so to speak, you know, <laughs> hit her over the head, pulled her into the cave, you know, kind of thing. I guess that would be make the man feel better, but, but let's say he's not going to do it. And here's the other thing. Now that we are talking about, you know, being in a social environment, and this is for the women, don't cluster so much. You're making it really tough for that guy to hit on you a little, you know, to really come over and try to engage in a conversation. It's hard enough for a guy to, or a woman, to, um, I guess this would really apply either way, you know, to initiate a conversation with someone, let's say at an MGE cocktails on the roof or a Shabbat dinner. But when you're cocooned with your two or three friends, it's like impossible sometimes. So you don't want to stand alone because then you feel like a nebuch. And nobody wants to feel like a nebuch. But you want to make yourself a little available. You know? I think that's important. That, that's in terms of, you know, making it a little easier to meet. Any other comments, questions? It's fun stuff, you know? I hope you find this helpful. Am I outdated? Is this like 30 years old? It's okay. <laughs> Uh, I want to, yeah, please, last question. Up again, you said someone you're attracted to, someone's kind. Kind slash character. good character. And then the third one is shared values. You want to go in the same direction, basically. You don't have to be exactly on the same sentence, but the same page. What kind of Jewish home do you want to create? What kind of, you know, um, I, I think that's very, very important. You want to discuss that. Now, that could be tweaked and it could change as you, co as you grow as a couple. Yeah. Uh, can I ask yeah, one last question. And then we're gonna, our fellows are patiently waiting in the back. But this is good for everyone. <laughs> um, yeah. About value. So I feel like it's a term that's often misused. Um, and what would you, like, how, how do you really define it? How do you also clean No, when I say shared values, I mean, like, you want to create a similar kind of home. Do you want Shabbat in your home? Uh -huh. Do you want to send your kids to day school? Are you okay with public school? Uh, you want to send them to Hebrew school? Like, you, I think th those are... I wouldn't say they're deal breakers, but they're big deals. What about non-Jewish values? If, like what? Like what? I, I, don't, I don't know. Like what's like regular life values? Yeah, of course. I, when I say Jewish value, I mean, like you, you're on the same page in terms of, uh, you know, Israel is important to me. I want to have a sense of Israel in my home. I want to travel. I want to visit Israel once a year. Whatever it is. Mm -hmm. uh, I think those are important things for couples to, uh, you know... But we really need to uh, wish a mazel tov uh, to Henry and Cheryl on their recent game. It's a great way to end class. Semen tavu, mazel tavu, mazel tavu, semen tavu, semen tavu, mazel tavu, mazel tavu, semen tavu, tavu, mazel tavu, mazel tavu, semen tavu. Hey la no, What do we wish a, a bride and groom that they should merit to build a bayit a home, ne'eman, trustworthy Israel within Israel? The Jewish people are getting another amazing, amazing Jewish family. Hashem should bless you guys with many, many good years to come. Mazel tov. Um, okay, next week uh, we are continuing with another a small series next week on. Temporary issues 
and the topic is marijuana, marijuana cigarette smoking, and cosmetic surgery. We're going to be talking about health and wellness next week, and then the following week is social media and slander. So please keep coming every week, guys. Thank you all for being here. This is great. Thank you so much.